Well, I've either gained six, eight inches or, but this is, this is very, very helpful. This will enable me to, from time to time, sit on the job, so to speak, because, so you'll understand, um, I bear all my weight on my right leg, and it gets tired, and the foot gets sore, but I can't shift, so if I sit, that's what's happening. But we've got a beautiful passage, an important passage today that speaks to us in a very powerful doctrinal way, and I pray also a very blessed application because of some prayers that we are very focusedly bringing before the throne of grace. John chapter 19, we shall read verses 23 through 30. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. John 19, 23 through 30. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John's method of staying in the background as much as he can, yet identifying himself. The disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Blessed Father, thank you for the faithful recording of this event, this singular event that shook the heavens and the earth. You declared the old system of ironic sacrifice finished by splitting the veil in two, opening access freely for us, thy children, into thy presence, into the Holy of Holies. 
We bless you, bless you, bless you. Father, your love is magnificent and just overflows to us and has overflowed through the giving of thy Son, but even more through the faithful, perfect life lived, active obedience, and the perfect death died for our sins, passive obedience. We bless you. We honor you. And we ask, Master, that you will hear our prayers, for they are in many directions here. There are heavy hearts, but thou attendest to them all, we know. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If the Father in heaven is well capable of keeping an account of every bird that falls, and he calls the stars out by name, he's listening to your prayer. He hears you. But we have come to the central moment of our blessed Lord's passion, his death on the cross by crucifixion. And we have seen the unlawful trial and the efforts of Pilate to release him on grounds that he, Pilate, found no fault in him. We have witnessed the dialogue with Pilate in which Christ confesses, I am a king, but not of this realm. And here John brings to a near climax his emphasis on the kingly office of Christ. Nathaniel chapter 1 confesses Christ as king. Jesus recognizes the <laughs> mounting imminent danger of the crowds declaring him to be a prophet, coming and forcing him to become a king, chapter 6. In chapter 18, Christ confesses, I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. And we have seen John's simple reference to the crucifixion at 19.1. Well, we witnessed Pilate's last attempt to rescue Jesus and what we looked at last week, his opening statement, well, his final statement to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from heaven. In truth, over all governmental concerns, it is heaven that rules. There is no authority except what has been established by God. As surely as God put Nero, Domitian, other evil Roman rulers on the throne, even so, he has placed every president, every judicial person, every congressman, every senator. He puts them there. Most of them just don't know that. <laughs> the church is to advance the gospel and pray for the state, whether the state blesses the advancement of the gospel or persecutes it. 
And from last week, that teaching on church and state is a blessed and very simple reality. Our methodology does not change. We are on the rock. It's the sea that changes. And sometimes the state will bless the church, and sometimes the state will make of the church martyrs. But the church advances the gospel and prays for the state. That is God's word. And then one other piece. The church corporate and individual obeys the state because it is the authority God put over us where such obedience is allowable. But when obedience to the state involves disobedience to precept or principle of sacred scripture, the church stands on its authority, the most high king of heaven, and obeys him, even when told you're disobeying us. And that's, again, very, very simple. Well, in chapter 19... Verses 13 through 15, glance at it because we did not read the whole. Pilate got the message. In verse 13, they've just accused him of opposing Caesar, and Pilate gets it, he gets it. The mention of Caesar by the Jews sealed Jesus' fate. And so the Roman prefect makes no answer. He brings Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. You see that in verse 13. He sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Judgment seat, an interesting word in the Greek, literally, bima seat, the transliteration, B-E-M-A, bima seat. Interesting because it is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. Turn with me there, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10, where Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That is the biblical norm for God's children. But is it true of me? Do I really prefer being home with the Lord or do I just really want to continue? Read the scripture. That's the biblical norm. Verse 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat. We must all appear before the bema seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Christ, fascinatingly, is sentenced on with Pilate sitting on the bema seat. And yet all mankind will on that great day appear before the bema or judgment seat of Christ. Will he be your savior or your judge? There's perhaps no more important question could be asked thee. Will he be your savior or your judge? What are you to him? And what is he to you today? Well, observe the convoluted thoughts of Pilate. Calvin suggests it is as if he, as if he was a stage player, and he's acting out two separate characters on the stage. He ascends the judgment seat in order to pronounce sentence of death on Christ solemnly and in the customary form. And yet he declares openly that he does so reluctantly and against his conscience. John cites in verse 14, the sixth hour. However, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cite Christ being on the cross from the third hour to the ninth. John used Roman time reckoning while the synoptics used Jewish time with the day beginning at 6 a.m. Thus, from our reckoning, Christ was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Now look at verse 15. The display of shocking madness by the priest takes one's breath away. They revolt against the spiritual kingdom of God and say they prefer the tyranny of Rome, which they greatly abhorred. Calvin says, thus wicked men, in order to fly from Christ, not only deprive themselves of eternal life, but draw down on their heads every kind of misery. But the sole happiness of the godly is to be subject to the royal authority of Christ, whether according to the flesh they are placed under a just and lawful government or under the oppression of tyrants. That's Calvin, verse 15. Church and state. The most high king of heaven is over both. But look again at verse 15. The translations say, away with him, away with him. But the word means lift up. As far as I could tell, I didn't examine all, but uh, my NASV, the ESV, they all say, away with him, away with him. But the word literally means lift him up, lift him up, is what they were shouting. And it's a specific term. I wrote to lift up. And we recall Jesus' statement. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John 12. Hmm. Wicked men think they are thwarting God. But God takes over their mouth and declares, 
lift him up, crucify him, lift him up out of their malice. God is so far ahead of Satan, <laughs> it's not funny. And he's so far ahead of the demons and so far ahead of ungodly governments. He is ruler over heaven and earth. He monitors birds dying. He calls stars out. He knows your issues and hears your prayers. 19, 16 through 17. John proceeds to the crucifixion itself. His narrative tells us some things not recorded in the other three Gospels. For instance, the title that Pilate hangs above Jesus' head. He puts it in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. It, John's Gospel tells us of Jesus' words from the cross, Dear woman, here is your son, and reciprocal son, here is your mother. I thirst, and it is finished. These are unique to John. John alone tells us also that Jesus' side was pierced, tells us of the important role of Nicodemus introduced to us early in John, and that Jesus carried his cross on the first part of the journey to Golgotha. This is said in verse 17. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Striking also, if you reflect upon your Old Testament, what Old Testament story do you think of? Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham takes and walks Isaac up Mount Moriah to the top of the mountain that God had showed him, there to offer Isaac in sacrifice, so he thought, Isaac carries the wood of the offering on his back. How striking the prophetic picture in a very easily understood way to what happens here. In truth, it was said, this is Genesis 22, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. For God provided the ram caught in the thicket in place of Isaac. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Jehovah Jireh, my, the Lord my provider. What Calvin says here, we must look for righteousness through the satisfaction made by Christ to prove that he is the sacrifice for our sins. He wished both to be led out of the city and to be hung on a tree. For the custom was in compliance with the injunction of the law that the sacrifices, the blood of which was shed for sin, was carried out of the camp when they were in the wilderness. And the same law declares that whoever is hung on a tree is accursed of God. Both were fulfilled in Christ that we might be fully convinced the atonement has been made for our sins by the sacrifice of his death. He was led out of the city 
in order to carry with him our defilements. Every foul image in the dark recesses of your mind, every unwholesome word you have ever spoken, every breaking of the Ten Commandments, Jesus took with him out of the city. Wow. Verse 18. Let us remember that these wicked executioners of Christ did nothing but what had been determined by the hand and purpose of God. And in that the Father determined that his son should suffer, Isaiah 53, that Scott read, we should consider the dreadful weight of his wrath against sin, and yet his infinite goodness towards us. For in no other way could our sin be removed than by the Son of God becoming a curse for us. And so we see him driven out into an accursed place as if he had been polluted by the full mass of sin and filth of all those for whom he was dying. Calvin says, this is good, I highlight it. Assuredly, we are prodigiously stupid if we do not plainly see in this mirror the abhorrence God has for sin. And we are harder than stones if we do not tremble at such a judgment as this. Check yourself. Does this speak to you? The enormity of what was laid on Christ to make possible your eternity in heaven. Does that say anything to you? If it doesn't, pray. Pray, Lord, open my eyes. Chapter 19, verses 19 through 24. Well, Pilate had written, Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews, which infuriated the chief priest, particularly because he wrote it in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, but observed that no crime was named. Customary would be the affixing of murder, robbery. No crime was named, just a title. And it was the providence of God guiding the hand of Pilate it did not occur to Pilate to celebrate Christ as the author of salvation and king of his chosen people. That's not what happened. But God dictated this commendation of the gospel, although Pilate knew not the meaning of what he wrote. And it was the same guidance of the Holy Spirit that caused the title to be published in the three languages that everybody would have known one. The Lord thus showed that the time was now at hand when the name of his son should be made known throughout the whole earth. Hmm. Calvin, tightly. Pilate, though a reprobate man and an instrument of Satan, was nevertheless by a secret guidance 
appointed to herald the gospel, that he might publish a short summary of it in three languages. Wow. Well, verses 23 through 4, behold the active and passive obedience of Christ. Behold the active and passive obedience of Christ. Passively, he was stripped naked, bearing our shame physically. Recall Adam and Eve after the bite? They both knew they were naked. Shame, instant. But beyond shame, Christ bore our guilt And he bore all of it, passive obedience. Actively, we are clothed with his righteousness, which he achieved as the second Adam. Our shame and our guilt are gone. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's advancing the gospel. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, because he was counting them on Christ, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Passive. Obedience, passive imputation, our sins to Christ. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Active obedience, Christ's righteousness, graced to, gifted to us. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us. And again, Isaiah foretold this in Isaiah 63. 61, rather, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. We are seen as righteousness, righteous before the Father, not because of what we are, but because of what Jesus is. So when God looks at me, he sees the very righteousness of Christ because I'm in Christ. That is my position of salvation. All praise, glory, and honor be to our Savior forever and ever. Amen. 25 through 27. Observe that while Christ obeyed the Father, he He did not fail to perform the duty he owed as a son to his mother. Indeed, it is only after being scourged and nailed to the tree 
that Christ looks down, being anxious for his mother. Some of us can't even think about other people because we're stressed out at the moment. It's not Christ. Not Christ. And you're not supposed to be that way if you're in Christ. Calvin observes that when we have obeyed God, it will then be the proper time to think about parents and wife and children, just as Christ attends to his mother. But it is after he's on the cross to which he has been called by his father's decree. And Christ's affection for his mother here is worthy of admiration. Christ places the mantle of responsibility that he bore as the eldest son squarely on John's shoulders. Son, behold thy mother. And woman, a term of endearment. Witness how he speaks to Mary post-resurrection. Woman, it's a term of endearment. Woman, behold thy son. He's placing her care on John's shoulders. Am I carefully performing my duties to God and then carefully performing my duties to those he has made me responsible to? If I prioritize duties to husband or wife or children over duties to God, I have made a new idol out of them for myself. The master, the father, your savior is your first responsibility and duty. Attend to that, then look down, take care of your mother. That's summary of Calvin, but it should resonate with you. 28 through 30, John records that after a short time after this, Jesus said, I thirst. But observe that Christ does not ask for any relief until he has accomplished all things. No words can fully express the bitterness of the suffering and sorrows he endured, and yet he does not desire relief until the justice of God has been satisfied on his flesh, on his person, until he has made perfect atonement. Some of us are scared of a little bit of pain. But the way of following Christ involves pain. There's always a cross. Our crosses look differently, <laughs> or we'd be automatons. But life is not going to be without pain. Pursue Christ through anything. A brief application by Calvin. It's very helpful. In this manner, and this is on these three verses, 28 through 30. In this manner, Christ instructs us by his own example to render perfect obedience that we may not think it hard to live according to his good pleasure, even though 
we must languish in the midst of the most excruciating pains. Think that one through. Your highest priority in life is not the escaping of discomfort and pain. That's an idol. Your highest priority in life is to be hard after Jesus through anything. Now, did you observe the medium used to get the uh, sour wine to Jesus' mouth? And I will point out, I wasn't planning on it, but commentators generally agree, they did not, as the movie showed, they did not tend to uh, position these guys so high in the air. If their feet were off the ground sufficiently, nailed to a small support, the mouth of one crucified is probably within reach of an average height man with a bit of hyssop. And that's it, the medium, hyssop. The very plant commanded by God to be used to dip in the slain lamb's blood and then sprinkled over the doorpost in Egypt. John may well, under guidance by the Spirit, be calling attention to Jesus as our perfect Passover sacrifice just by the reference to hyssop. And so Paul declares, 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Mm. Well, here we enter straight into doctrine. Straight into doctrine. Cinch your belt a little tighter. Jesus said, verse 30, it is finished bowed his head, gave up his spirit. One commentator says, and it's a powerful sentence, surely it is not an exaggeration to think that ta telestai, which is the Greek for it is finished, is the key word, it's one word, key word of the fourth gospel, the key to the solution of its theological problem. Indeed, this verb is in the perfect tense, which represents the action completed in the past, but with continuing result. Completed in the past, in this case the immediate past, but with continuing result. It is done. It is finished. It has been finished. There is a finality in his declaration, a never-to-be-repeatedness in his declaration. It is done. Now, the very same word is used in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been finished. It's the same word, same word. So, in the apostolic writing, there is great emphasis in Jesus' thought and subsequent word as to the finished nature of the atonement. You catch that? 
Calvin thinks that's big. I do too. Verse 28, the word is used. Jesus, knowing all things have been finished, then declares in verse 30, on the cross, it is finished. That's important. The Spirit is saying, pay attention to this. Calvin, this word deserves our attention for it shows that the whole accomplishment of our salvation and all the parts of it are contained in his death. Now here, deeper waters, so I'm going to sit down. I don't have a seatbelt, but here there is great contrast, great contrast made with the ironic sacrificial system, which of necessity had to be repeated year after year after year at Passover, day after day after day in the temple or tabernacle. But every year a, a new Passover lamb had to be slain, clearly implying that the sacrifice was not truly and fully sufficient. Clearly implying Turn to Hebrews 7, 26 to 8. We're going to walk through three, four passages in, seven, in Hebrews. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. And it's good. It's very good to, with the ear gate, engage the eye gate as well. You will drink it in far better. For it was fitting for us, Hebrews 7, 26, Baptist air conditioning. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Notice verse 27, the this he did once for all. Now, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. And you understand that Hebrews is giving us the theology, the theological take on what John gives us as a historical record of what happened at the cross. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but, but through his own blood he entered the holy place, there it is again, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Notice the tense. It doesn't say obtaining eternal redemption. It says having obtained, past, done, finished. 
Hebrews 9, 27 through 8. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And finally, Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. Starts off in the midst of a line of argument and references by this will. It's, he's speaking of the will of God to the Son who had taken, received the body prepared for him. So Hebrews 10, 10. By this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is finished. Every priest stands daily ministering. When Hebrews was written, the temple was probably still standing. So Hebrews precedes 70 AD is the thought. So they're still doing it in the temple. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, observe that, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now let's listen to Calvin, direct quote linking Christ's statement, it is finished, supported by these few, but they're multitudinous in Hebrews, supports of the once for all, it is finished. Listen to Calvin linking Christ's statement, it is finished with Roman Catholicism. Quote, this word of Christ condemns the abomination of the mass. All the sacrifices of the law have ceased, for the salvation of men has been completed by the one sacrifice of the death of Christ. What right then have papists for saying they are authorized to prepare a new sacrifice to reconcile God to men. They reply that it is not a new sacrifice, but the very sacrifice which Christ offered. But this is easily refuted. In the first place, they have no command to offer Christ afresh. It's called Calvin. There is no command. Secondly, Calvin, Christ having once accomplished all that was necessary to be done declares from the cross it 
is finished. They are worse than forgers, therefore, for they wickedly corrupt and falsify the testament sealed by the precious blood of the Son of God, end quote. systemic flaw theologically in Roman Catholicism. Systemic. Well, Hebrews provides the theology underneath and caused by this declaration of Christ from the cross. It is finished. And if we assent to this word pronounced by Christ, we will be satisfied with his death alone for our salvation. This is paraphrased, but it's also Calvin, but it's also pure biblical logic. We are not at liberty to seek assistance from any other quarter, such as prayers to saints or prayers to the blessed Mother of Jesus, Mary. No, we come to the Father through the Son. We do not pray on the merit of others. For he who was sent by the Heavenly Father to obtain for us full pardon and to accomplish our redemption knew what belongs to his office and did not fail in what he knew to be demanded of him. And it was chiefly for the purpose of giving peace and tranquility to our consciences that he pronounced this word. It is finished. Ta telestai. Hmm. Blessed. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Well, application. Consider well the example set for us by Christ. Luke 23, 44 through 46 adds to John's record a bit. Luke 23, 44, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. 9 to 12 on the cross, much more discussion. 12 to 3, black darkness, very few words. When the wrath of God descended upon the sun. Verse 45 of Luke 23, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. John records simply, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Consider well this example that all believers who die in Christ peacefully commit their souls to the guardianship of God the Father, who is faithful and will not suffer to perish what he has undertaken to preserve. 
this is Calvin, the children of God as well as those not in Christ die. But there is this difference between them that the one not in Christ gives up the soul, has it disappear from him or her without knowing where it goes or what becomes of it. While the child of God commits his or her soul as a precious trust to the protection of God the Father who will faithfully guard it until the day of the resurrection. We can trust our Father in heaven totally. We trust him for our eternity. Will we not trust him with the challenges of our stay upon the earth? Second application is all summarized in a blessed song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, even the mother of Jesus, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils your lovely face. I rest on your unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Your oath, your covenant, your blood Support me in the whelming flood. When, when all around my soul gives way, you then are all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ on thee, my rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He said it is finished. It is finished. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, how wondrously good you are to us. Present tense have been to us passed through the guilt of thy Son, the achievement of perfect active righteousness gifted to us now, but first suffering a perfect vicarious death and declaring between heaven and earth it is finished. Our hope is secure as an anchor within the veil. And though the world, Lord, may ebb and flow and shift and change, and even our health, Lord, our hope is built 
on nothing less than you, Jesus, your blood and righteousness. Thank you. We love you. In Christ's name. Amen.